everyone. It's your storyteller. Alright, first of all, the recording of this is going to be crap because I'm doing it on a phone, I have no mic, and I'm trying to read off of a Kindle on my iPhone. So, but I felt like you guys needed a, needed a reading because I wanted to read. Um, not quite sure where we left off, but I know it's somewhere around chapter four. So that's where we're going to start. Chapter four. All right. So this is a uh, slaughterhouse five by Kurt Vonnegut. Chapter 4 Billy Pilgrim could not sleep on his daughter's wedding night. He was 44. The wedding had taken place that afternoon in a gaily striped tent in Billy's backyard. The stripes were orange and black. Billy and his wife, Valencia, nestled like spoons in their big double bed. They jiggled by magic fingers. Valencia did not need to be jiggled to sleep. Valencia was snoring like a bandsaw. The poor woman didn't have any ovaries or a uterus anymore. They were removed by a surgeon, by one of Billy's partners at the Holiday Inn. There was a full moon. Billy got out of bed in the moonlight. He felt spooky and a luminous felt as though he were wrapped and cool fur that was full of static electricity. He looked down at his bare feet, and they were ivory and blue. Billy now shuffled down his upstairs hallway, knowing he was about to be kidnapped by a flying saucer. The hallway was zebra stripes with darkness and moonlight. The moonlight came into the hallway through doorways of the empty rooms of children of Billy's two children. Children no more. They were gone forever. Billy was guided by dread and the lack of dread. Dread told him when to stop. Lack of it told him when to move again. So he stopped. He went into his daughter's room. Her drawers were dumped. Her closet was empty. Heaped in the middle of the room were all the possessions she could not take on honeymoon. She had a princess telephone extension, all of her own, on the windowsill. Its tiny nightlight stared at Billy. And then it rang. Billy answered. There was a drunk on the other end. Billy could almost smell his mustard gas breath and roses. It was a wrong number. Billy hung up. There was a soft drink bottle on the windowsill. Its label boasted that it contained no nourishment whatsoever. Billy Pilgrim padded downstairs on his blue and ivory feet. He went into the kitchen where moonlight called his attention to a half bottle of champagne in the kitchen. All that was left from the reception in the tent. Somebody had soppered it again. Drink me, it seemed to say. 
So Billy uncorked it with his thumbs. It didn't make a pop, so the champagne was dead. So it goes. Billy looked at the clock in the gas stove. He had about an hour to kill before the saucer came. He went into the living room, swinging the bottle like a dinner bell, turned on the television. He came slightly unstuck in time, saw the movie backwards, and then forwards again. It was a movie about American bombers in the Second World War and the gallant men who flew them. Seen backwards by Billy, the story went like this. American planes full of holes, wounded men and corpses took off backwards from an airfield over England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew backwards, sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and the crewmen. They did the same for the wrecked American bombers on the ground, and these planes flew up backwards to join the formation. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bombed bay doors, exerted a miraculous magnetism, which had shrunk, shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers into the belly of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. The Germans had miraculous miraculous devices of their own, which were long steel tubes. They used them more to suck the fragments from the crewmen and the planes. But there were still a few wounded Americans, though, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France, though, German fighters came up again, made everything and everybody as good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the, st the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this job. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in a remote ground. It was their business to put them on the ground, to hide them cleverly, so they would never hurt anybody again. The American flyers turned on their uniforms, became high school kids. Hitler turned into a baby, Billy, Billy Pilgrim supposed. That wasn't in the movie. Everybody turned into a baby. And all humanity, without exception, conspired biologically to produce two perfect people named Adam and Eve, he supposed. Billy saw the war movies backwards and then forwards. And then it was time to go. So he got up to go into his backyard to meet the flying saucer. Out he went, with his blue and ivy feet, crushing the wet salad of the lawn. He stopped and took a swig of the dead champagne. It was like seven up. He did not raise his 
eyes to the sky, though he knew there was a, floss, a fine saucer from Tralfamador up there. And it would, soon seen, it would be soon enough, inside and out, he would see too. Where it came from, soon enough, soon enough. Overhead, he heard the cry of white might have been a melodious owl. But it wasn't a melodious owl. It was the flying saucer from Trophamador, navigating in space and time. Therefore, seeming to Billy Pilgrim had come from nowhere at once. Somewhere, a dog barked. The saucer was 100 feet in diameter, with portholes around the rim. The light from the portholes was pulsing purple. The only noise it made was the owl song. It came down to hover over Billy and enclose him in a cylinder of pulsing purple light. Now there was a sound of a seemingly kiss in the airtight hatch at the bottom of the saucer as it opened. Down snaked the ladder was an outlined in pretty lights like a ferris wheel. Billy's will was paralyzed by a zap gun aimed at him from one of the portholes. It became imperative that he take hold of the bottom rung of the ladder, which he did. The rung became electrified, so Billy's hands locked onto it hard. He was hauled into the airlock, and the machinery closed the bottom door. Only then did the ladder wound in a reel in the airlock let him go only then did Billy's brain start working again there were two peepholes inside the airlock with yellow eyes pressed to them there was a speaker on the wall the Trophamdorians had no voice boxes they communicated telepathically they were able to talk to Billy by means of a computer and some sort of electric organ which made very earthling speech sound. Welcome aboard, Mr. Pilgrim, said the loudspeaker. Any questions? Billy licked his lips, thought for a while, and inquired at last, Why me? Why, that is a very earthling question to ask, Mr. Pilgrim. Why you? Why us, for that matter? Why anything? Because the moment simply is. Have you ever seen bugs trapped in amber? Yes. Billy, in fact, had a paperweight in his office with blob of polished amber with three ladybugs embedded in it. Well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of this moment, so there is no why. They introduced an aesthetic into Billy's atmosphere. Now, put him to sleep. They carted him to the cabin, where he was strapped to a yellow barca lounger, which had been stolen from a Sears and Roebuck warehouse. The hold of the saucer was crammed with other stolen merchandise. 
which would be used to furnish Billy's artificial habitat in the zoo on Trofamador. The terrific acceleration of the saucer as it left Earth twisted Billy's slumbering body, distorted his face, dislodging him in time, and sent him back to the war. When he regained consciousness, he wasn't on the flying saucer. He was in a boxcar, crossing Germany again. Some people were rising from the floor of the car, and others were lying down. Billy had planned to lie down, too. It would have been lovely to sleep. It was black in the car, black outside the car. It seemed to be going about two miles an hour. The car never seemed to go any faster than that. There was a long time between clicks, between joints in the track. There would be a click, and then a year would go by, and there would be another click. The train often stopped to let really important trains ball and hurtle by. Another thing it did was stop on sightings near prisons, leaving a few cars there. It was creeping across all of Germany, growing shorter and shorter all the time. And Billy let himself down, oh so gradually now, hanging on to the diagonal cross brace in the corner in order to make himself seem nearly weightless to those he was joining with on the floor. He knew it was important that he made himself nearly ghost-like when lying down. He had forgotten why, but a reminder soon came. Pilgrim? said a person he was about to nestle with. Is that you? Billy didn't say anything, but nestled very politely and closed his eyes. God damn it, said the person. Is that you, isn't it? He sat up and explored Billy's brutally with his hands. It is you. All right, get the hell out of here. Now Billy sat up, too wretched, close to tears. Get out of here. I want to sleep. Shut up, said somebody else. I'll shut up when Billy gets away from me. So Billy stood up again, clung to the cross brace. Where can I sleep? He asked quietly. Not with me. Not with me, you son of a bitch, said somebody else. You kick and yell. I do? Goddamn right you do and whimper. I do? Keep the hell away from here, pilgrim. And now there was an acrimonious marjoram with parts sung in all quarters of the car. Nearly everybody seemingly had an atrocity story of something Billy Pilgrim had done to him in his sleep. Everybody told Billy Pilgrim to get the hell away. So Billy Pilgrim had to sleep, standing up or not sleep at all. And the food had stopped coming through the ventilators, and the days and the nights were colder all the time. On the eighth day, a 
40-year-old hobo said to Billy. This ain't so bad. I can be comfortable anywhere. You can, said Billy. On the ninth day, the hobo died. So it goes. His last words were, You think this is bad? This ain't bad. There's something about death and the ninth day. There was a death on the ninth day in the car ahead of Billy's, too. It was Roland Weary. Died of gangrene that he had started with his mangled feet. So it goes. Weary, in his nearly continuous delirium, told again and again of the three musketeers, acknowledged that he was dying, and gave many messages to be delivered to his family in Pittsburgh. Above all, he wanted to be avenged. He said again and again the name of the person who killed him. Everyone in the car learned the lesson very well. Who killed me? He would ask. And everybody knew the answer. Which was this. Billy Pilgrim. Listen, on the tenth night, the peg was pulled out of the haps on Billy's boxcar door. The door was opened. Billy Pilgrim was lying at an angle on the corner brace, self-crucified, holding himself there with blue and ivory claw hooked over the sill, the sill of the ventilator. Billy coughed when the door was open, and when he coughed, he shit, thin gruel. That was in accordance with the third law of motion, according to Sir Isaac Newton. This law tells us that for every action, there is a reaction which is equal and opposite in direction. This could be very useful in rocketry. The train had arrived by sliding by the prison, which was originally constructed as an extermination camp for Russian prisoners of war. The guard peeked inside Billy's car, owlishly, cooed calmly. He had never dealt with Americans before, but they surely understood this general sort of freight. They knew it was essentially a liquid which could be induced to flow slowly towards the cooing and the light. It was nighttime. The only light outside came from a single bulb which hung from a pole high and far away. All was quiet outside, except for the guards, who cooed like doves. And the liquid began to flow. Gobs of it built up in the doorway, plopped to the ground. Billy was the next to last human to reach the door. The hobo was last. The hobo couldn't flow, so not plop. He wasn't liquid anymore. He was stone. So it goes. Billy didn't want to drop from the car to the ground. He sincerely believed that he would shatter like glass. So the guards helped him down, cooing still. They set him down facing the train. It was such a dinky train now. There was a locomotive, a tender, and three little boxcars. The last boxcar was the railroad's guard, heaven on wheels. Again, 
that in that heaven on wheels, the table was set and dinner was served. At the base of the pole, which the light bulb hung, were three seeming haystacks. The Americans were wheedled and teased all over those three stacks, which weren't hay at all. They were overcoats taken from prisoners who were dead. So it goes. It was the guard's firmly expressed wish that every American without an overcoat should take one. The coats were cemented together with ice, so the guards had to use their bayonets as ice picks. Pricking free coats and hems and sleeves and so on. Then peeling off the coats and handing them out at random. The coats were stiff and dome-shaped, having conformed to their piles. The coat the Billy Pilgrim had gotten was crumpled frozen in such a way and it was too small and it appeared not to be a coat but some sort of black three-cornered hat thing there were gummy stains on it too like a crankcase uh, drainings or old strawberry jam there seemed to be a dead furry animal frozen to it the animal was in fact the coat's fur collar Billy glanced duly at the coats of his neighbors. They all had coats with brass buttons, or tinsel, or piping, or numbers or stripes on them, or eagles, moons, stars dangling from them. They were soldiers' coats. Billy was the only one who had gotten a coat from a dead civilian. So it goes. And Billy and the rest were encouraged to shuffle around their dinky little train into the prison camp. There wasn't anything warm or lively to attract them, merely long, low, narrow sheds by the thousands with no lights. Somewhere a dog barked, and with the help of fear and echoes and the winter silence, the dog had a voice like a big bronze gong. Billy and the rest were wooed through the gate and another gate, gate after gate, and Billy saw his first Russian. The man was all alone at night, a rag bag and a round flat face that glowed like a radium dial. Billy passed within a yarn of him. There was barbed wire between them. The Russian did not wave or speak, but he looked directly into Billy's soul with sweet hopefulness, as though Billy might have some good news for him. News he might be too stupid to understand, but good news all the same. Billy blacked out as he walked through the gate and gate after gate. He came to what he thought might be a building on Trafamador. It was shrilly lit and lined with white towel tiles. It was on earth, though. It was a delousing station which all the prisoners had to go through. As Billy did as he told, took off his clothes, 
That was the first thing they told to do in one trough Amador, too. A German measured Billy's upper right arm with thumb and forefinger, asked a companion what sort of army would be sent such a weakling like that to the front. They looked at the other American bodies now. They pointed a lot more were nearly as bad as Billy's. One of the best bodies belonged to the oldest American, by far, a high school teacher from Indianapolis. His name was Edgar Derby. He hadn't been in Billy's boxcar. He had been in Roland's car. He cradled wet Weary's head while he died. So it goes. Derby was 44 years old. He was so old, he had a son who was a Marine in the Pacific Theater of the War. Derby had pulled political wires to get him into the Army at his age. The subject he taught in Indianapolis was contemporary problems in Western civilization. He also coached the tennis team and took very good care of his body. Derby's son would survive the war. Derby wouldn't. That good old body of his would be filled with holes by a firing squad in Dresden in 68 days. So it goes. The worst American body was not Billy's. The worst belonged to a card thief from Cicero, Illinois. Name was Paul Lazaro. He was tiny, and not only were his bones and teeth rotten, but his skin was disgusting. Lazaro was polka dotted all over with dime-sized scars. He had many plagues of boils. Lazaro, too, had been on Weary's boxcar and had given a word of honor to Weary that he would find some way to make Billy Pilgrim pay for his death. He was looking around now, wondering which naked human was Billy. The naked humans took their places under many showerheads along the white-tiled wall. There were no faucets they could control, so they only had to wait for whatever was coming. Their penises were shriveled, their balls retracted. Reproduction was not the main business of the evening. An unseen hand turned the master valve. Out of the showerheads gushed scalding rain. The rain was a blowtorch that did not warm. It jazzed and jangled Billy's skin without thawing the ice and the marrow of his long bones. The Americans' clothes were meanwhile passing through poisonous gas. Body lice, bacteria, and fleas were dying by the billions. So it goes. And Billy zoomed back in time to his infancy. He was a baby who had just been bathed by his mother. Now his mother wrapped him in a towel, carried him into a rosy room filled with sunshine. She unwrapped him, laid him on the tickling towel, powdered him between his legs, and choked with him, patted his little jelly belly, her palm was on his little jelly belly made potching sounds. Billy gurgled and cooed. 
And then Billy Pilgrim was a middle-aged optometrist again, playing hacker's golf this time on a blazing hot summer morning. Billy never went to church anymore. He was hacking with three other optometrists. Billy was put on the green in seven strokes, and it was his turn to putt. This was an eight-foot putt. <laughs> he made it. He bent over to take the ball out of the cup. The sun went behind a cloud, and Billy was momentarily dizzy. When he recovered, he was not on the golf car anymore. He was strapped to a yellow contour chair in a white train chamber aboard the flying saucer, which was bound for Trout Famidor. Where am I? said Billy Pilgrim, trapped in another blob of amber, Mr. Pilgrim. This is where we have to be, just three thousand million miles from Earth, bound for a time warp which will get us to Trofamador in hours and rather than centuries. How did I get here? It would take another Earthling to explain it to you. Earthlings are great explainers, explaining why this event has structured as it is, telling how other events may be achieved or avoid. I am a Trofamadorian, seeing all of time as you might see a stretch of the Rocky Mountains. All of time is all of time. It doesn't change. It doesn't lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment, and you will find that we are, as I've said before, bugs in amber. You sound to me as though you don't believe in free will, said Billy Pilgrim. If I hadn't been studying so much time studying earthlings, said the Tralfamidorian, I would have no idea what was meant by free will. I have visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe, and I have studied reports on 100 more. Only Earth is their talk of free will. Alright listeners, stopping here for the night, well the night here, maybe daytime with you, I don't know, I have listeners all over the world, I have listeners in like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, which it blows my mind, but anyway, I am stopping here because uh, we're starting chapter 5 and I'm pretty tired from lifting kegs and beer all day. And it's also 1.30 in the morning. So, I'm going to come back. I hopefully won't have so long in between the stories. They'll just have to have shitty sound. So, you take the good with the bad. And 
Oh, I'm going to start doing um, banned books and beer episodes. The greatest thing about working in a beer bar is you get to try everything. And you have the distributors telling you what's good and what isn't. And all this wonderful stuff. So, um, maybe my next episode I'm going to do from Westbrook. It's in Mount Pleasant, right outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, it's called A Beer You Drink on a Very Hot Day. It is a corn uh, based uh, and it's got key lime uh, key lime essence in it and it's super good (laughs) so I think that'll be the next reading so we're going to stop at chapter 5 and I hope you have a good wherever you are in the world You were just listening to Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. So it goes.